Hello, and welcome to To Think Minimum. Today is Thursday, June 8th, 2023. I'm Scott Walston, president of the Technology Policy Institute, and I'm here with my co-host, TPI Senior Fellow and President Emeritus Tom Leonard. Today, we're going to talk a bit about mergers in the media, tech, and telecom space, building off the recent attempted Standard General Techno merger. As a little bit of background, Standard General, a hedge fund, had planned to purchase Tegna, a broadcaster with stations around the country, for about $8.6 billion. The merger required FCC approval since it involved transferring a broadcast license. FCC Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel decided to send the matter to an administrative law judge without a vote, which effectively killed the deal. The deal officially died a few weeks ago when Standard General's financing expired. There were rumblings that this happened because former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi intervened on behalf of a donor who had also once tried to purchase Tegna. We're excited to talk about that and related issues today with Ryan Vaughn, who is Senior Tech Media and Telecom, or TMT, and event-driven desk analyst with Needham and Company Investment Bank. Ryan started his career on Wall Street in 2004 as a high-yield and distressed bond analyst. He joined Lombard Odier Asset Management in 2008 as a senior analyst investing primarily in TMT and consumer sectors across credit and equity. In 2016, he joined Needham, where he is today. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you, Scott. Glad to be here. So why don't you just start off, give us a little bit more background. Tell us about Tegna and why you were following the deal in the first place and how you and and others on Wall Street viewed the FCC's, let's say, just lack of approval on it. Yeah. So so first things first, I picked up the broadcast TV space in, in 2010. And if you remember, for the next several years, there was kind of quite a bit of an M&A wave where you might have, I'm just going to make up numbers, 30 or 40 smaller TV broadcasters, and they recognized the need for size and for scale. And you saw a series of mergers during that time. The big names that I'm sure you've heard of are obviously like a Tegna, Sinclair, a Great TV, Nexstar, and even Scripps, for, for that matter. Those are mm-hmm. pretty much the, the, the last kind of five large standing TV broadcasters. Today, they're all public companies. And this uh, transaction with Tegna had been contemplated late 2019, early 2020, right before the pandemic. At that point in time, it was reported that Great TV was interested. Who else? Uh, Obviously, Cox and Apollo were, were interested. Byron Allen, it was reported, was interested in the assets. And then we were also dealing with a Republican-led administration at that time, which we can get into if you'd like. There are certain ownership rules that, depending on who's in, in charge, are, are more mindful or respective of versus others. But uh, fast forward, the pandemic hit. Things kind of went to the back burner to see where the dust settled. And then in, I guess, what, back half of 2021, rumors started to circulate that Tegna was back out there on the market. And you know, the one thing about this one is that uh, Standard General ended up obviously being the, the winning bidder, but Standard General was involved in Tegna for years and years and years. At different points of time, had a 10% stake. They actually went to different proxy fights. It was quite a contentious relationship. And then, sure enough, the two sides came together. They announced the merger. And this would have happened in February 2022. When it was first announced, did you view the deal as effectively done? Did you, did you see any controversy on the horizon at all? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. So to bridge from the back half of 2021 to the early parts of 2022, in my view, and probably the view of a lot of others, is that 
it was really working out the mechanics. Like I said, we had a new chairwoman in place. Again, certain rules would be evaluated differently, the uh, UHF discount. So the structure was important. So as far as I'm concerned, I, I don't know if it was so much tagging the board saying, hey, no, we want 25 instead of 22 or 24. I think that part was probably a little bit easier. 24 was probably the right price. And you can look at, like I said, a decade worth of transaction multiples to arrive at that price. I say all of that because the most important thing was the structure, which is what you were alluding to. And I think people were, were well aware not to bring anything to the FCC that required the UHF discount. So the way that this was structured was that Standard General and Sue Kim would be the sole voting owner of the new entity. And despite having the involvement from Cox and Apollo and other you know, financial investment firms as well, they would own preferred stock that is non-attributable, i.e. therefore not going to brush up against those ownership rules, even though it might be, you know, a little bit, I shouldn't even say it's great. I think they, they legally or, or correctly found a way to structure the transaction that would get approved, could get approved based on the rules. So, so let me just um, inter- interrupt you for a second to take a little tangent here, because I think a couple of things that you said here are particularly interesting, not even just for the Tegna deal. But I mean, you mentioned that the, the UHF discount. So just remind people what, what that is. But also, it's an example, I think, of how various regulations, whether they made sense or not, end up affecting how investors think about what types of deals to come to Washington with in the first place. Yeah. So first things first, I think. From Jessica to every other current and former <laughs> FCC commissioner, I think they would all agree that these UHF discounts are just, just don't fit in today's media grander ecosystem. I think everybody knows that former Chairman Pai was you know, evaluating going down that path. Mm-hmm. We set it from 39% ownership, meaning you're only allowed to reach a certain percentage of, of the population. Do we raise it to 60? That was contemplated for a while. And, and I think it was probably, this is going to take a lot of work. You're going to need Congress to ultimately approve this. What's the chance? And then do you really open up that potential can of worm? And I, I don't think they, I think former Chairman Bai just said, look, we're going to honor, this is the rule. It's the UHF discount. And I say that because you know, there were a couple of transactions, larger transactions, like a Nexstar Tribune that might reach 65 or 70% of the population. But on a UHF discount basis, and I'll tell you what that means in a second, might only hit 39%, which, which meets the criteria. So again, this, that, that rule goes back probably 20 or 30 years. And it's just from the old days where you were gathering your, your signal, your feed from an antenna, some signals were stronger than others. The UHF was, was stronger than the VHF. And because of that, if you owned a VHF station, it would only count as 50% of the population because it only could reach, you know, officially, unofficially, 50% of the population. But for a long time, that's how transactions have gotten done. And I think everybody that is seeing what's going on, we're seeing the news lately with just about every major sports and media. The fact that the TV broadcasters are still subject to this, they can only reach 39% when Facebook has Facebook Marketplace that's heavily local. I mean, we, we use it all the time, for example. And then Google, obviously, is, is local. I mean, it, the, the playing field has totally changed versus 20 or 30 years ago. 
but it's it's still it would take you know the FCC to pick up that issue and notice a proposed rulemaking and go down that path. It's going to take a long time, and it doesn't appear that anybody would like to do that. Okay, so let me go back to the, to the story. So they have to, no matter what the most efficient merger would be, they've got to structure it in a way that doesn't run afoul of the UHF discount. Okay, right. so this old rule is affecting the way mergers have to take place or at least be structured. Okay, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. I just thought no, that was no. an interesting sidebar there. <laughs> I, I often equate it to: Would it be any problem if one day, you know, Nexstar, Tagner, Gray, or someone said, "Hey, I want to go buy a ten percent stake in." one of these public companies, would that be an issue? I don't think it would be. So in many ways, I think that's kind of how they structured it. Sure, in an ideal world, you would just put the two companies together. And, mm-hmm. and frankly, Cox, uh, Apollo today, it, it's, it's not even that big. They don't even own that many stations. They don't reach that much. However, it's above that 39%. And uh, Standard General, who's been around the space for what I think I think Sue Kim came into the space in 09, if I'm 08 08 or 09, if I'm not mistaken, he's been around here. He owns TV stations. So, so I think this was just perhaps, again, going to what you were asking, the structure that meets all of the rules. Was that a major issue in, in, in referring it to an administrative hearing and essentially scuttling the deal? or was Maybe I'll start off with this because, I, I, forgive me, Scott, you had asked me before, what did people think initially? And, and it's a good point because any of the deals out here today, there's an entire investment community, and I communicate with that community regularly that evaluates merger deals. And what does that mean? You know, company A is buying company B at $40. It was trading at $30. And on back in the news, it trades up to $36. But there's that $4 spread that your traditional longtime fundamental investor might say, hey, look, you're now in deal limbo for the next 12 months. That's not really what I do. I'd rather reallocate that capital into other assets in the space. So they sell it, and then in comes the merger arm, what we call community, that is sophisticated, experienced in dealing with regulatory matters, among other things. You know, you have to get financing and certain things like that, that will look to capture that last remaining, what could be on, on, on super tight deals, one or 2%, or riskier deals, which maybe we'll touch on a couple of them. Could be as much as you know working on one that's fifty percent today, for example. So again, it's all a measure of risk and what the likelihood is a deal that gets done. And just again to answer your question on Tegna, I, I don't really need to go back and look at it per se. I want to say it was always maybe it was trading in the high single digit percentages initially, but it didn't take long. I would say for majority of the time period, it was trading at fifteen or 20 percent, which is it would be on the higher end of where spreads trade. And again, the spread is going to be a a mix of the likelihood that a deal gets done on top of if it doesn't get done, what that fundamental or or should that deal break, what the company's worth. So it was trading for a while, I'd say on average 15, 20% for majority of that, suggesting that investors were quite skeptical or concerned that this might not get through the FCC. So then was it less of a surprise to some when it was referred to the ALJ? It's, that's, that's a great point. I think that's really important. I wouldn't say it was a surprise as much as how it happened, right? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it was surprising that the FCC didn't want to approve it, but it was really more surprising how they did that. And again, that would be the one thing in, in, in our uh, merger op community that would have caught some investors by surprise is just 
that they went through the media bureau. And I think we all know, like we, we, had a, we always have different points in time uh, that we communicate with the commissioners. And they've been very clear that larger transactions get reviewed at the commission level. And this is an $8.5 billion transaction. So certainly, this one would fall under that criteria. And we had some, some conversations along the way that suggested, yeah, that's where it goes. Each has their own team, and then each will vote. And, and obviously, uh, I think, Tom, to answer your question, this is where Standard General, what Standard General was asking for, even until the very last days and hours, was just, hey, just take it to a vote, take it to a vote. But they didn't want to go that way. And I think that was the surprise part in February 2023, where the Media Bureau then sent it to the ALJ. For us investors that have been around the space for a while, we had seen it once before for different reasons, but it was all but perfectly clear the intention was that we're not going to approve it. Anybody can go look at how long the cases take at the ALJ. On average, it's 12 or 15 months. So you know, to have three months from there to potentially get something done, it just it wasn't going to happen by yeah. way of ALJ. Was the reason, the reason for doing that because because it was a split commission, they didn't have a majority. I don't know what happens if it's a two-two vote on something like that. Which way does it go? You know, Tom, it's a great it's a great question because we were hearing mixed things as well. At least one former commissioner had said, "Hey, two-two blocks it, or you can't transfer it with two-two. But the one thing that Standard General has been arguing from the very beginning was just give us a vote, give us a vote. Which leads me to believe. If they were to vote along party lines, it would still be 2-2, which kind of gets us to the same point. I think at the end of the day, I, I think they just did well, There was some other reason, Tom, whether it's you can't block it or you don't want to be on the record having blocked it. It's, it's, it's one of those two as far as why they went the way that, uh, that they did. Well, so obviously, it was a, <laughs> this was a, a huge blow to, to Tegna and Standard General and anybody who had money riding on the deal. But if, if the surprise was really about process, then it also sort of suggests it may have caused investors concern about future deals or, you know, make people, companies, um, investors, others think about what deals might go through at all. If you had an idea of how this would happen, how this is supposed to happen, and suddenly it happens in a different way, what does that do to how people think about these issues going forward? Yeah, so this one in particular versus some of the other major deals out there not only required the FTC or the DOJ approval, but also required the FCC approval. So if I were to look at some of the large pharma deals, for example, it, it's, it's the FTC slash DOJ that would need to approve it. There is no FCC component. So this one was a little bit uh, more specific because it's the transfer of licenses. So there's no question, and I, I talked to a lot of the TV broadcasters, the, the management teams there, and I started to wake them up. They're, they're all busy. They all have their own focuses that, during this time period of managing their own businesses. But to that exact point, look, I was saying, if this doesn't go through, like it definitely is going to affect you know, the perception, the valuation, potential access to capital. And I think that's probably why some of them took a little bit more of a close eye on, on what was going on here. I think most would say, hey, look, the way that they structured it, it should serve as a way for the FCC to approve it. It didn't. So, so the net going into it was certainly don't bring any transactions that require the UHF discount. That's number one. And then number two, if you're going to get you know, a little bit more complex with the structure, you're going to have a, a tougher time. But with that being said, we could talk about ultimately why they went that path, you know, what the reasons might be specifically because what they 
said, especially, Thomas, you were asking about the notice going to the ALJ, was, was the focus on the newsroom job cuts as well as cost to consumers, the, the rise of retrans. However, Standard General could not have been more clear on remedy offers that say, hey, we'll fix these. We're not going to let anybody go for two years. No, we won't let anybody go for three years. And it doesn't take too much reading in the Wall Street Journal to realize that job cuts have been happening pretty regularly at a lot of these TMT companies today. Well, and also, I mean, obviously, if you read, the, which I'm sure you have, the Wall Street Journal editorial page, the allegation is that this was a highly political decision and, you know, for a variety involving various interest groups, the uh, Communications Workers Union, as well as major political contributors. How was all that viewed in the investment community? I thought that this one, the way that they structured, obviously, Standard General, very sophisticated, been around the space for so long. They've bought and sold stations before that they would know their way around navigating the FCC. Same with Cox and Apollo. Cox has been here for a long time. Apollo bought a large stake in Cox not too long ago. So I thought, you know, they, they were savvy enough to put something forward that could get approved. You know, I think in this case, the whole political, I definitely underestimated. I started focusing more on, okay, they, they checked the boxes for the structure, right? It seemed to be that that should be okay. And then just having followed the space for so long, there's always been such an emphasis on diversity. And that was the, that was really what I thought was going to be the catalyst to carry this. And I mean, look, <laughs> thinking about new media versus old media, a lot of the old media, it just so happens to be owned or dominated or controlled by older white men. It just so happens to be. And, and I think it just might be, you know, look at some of these companies that have been around for tens and 50 and 100 years. It just, it's, that's the way it is. And I thought that going into this, oh, wow, Asian American owner, as well as a female-led CEO. And again, I just don't, I don't really have any of my corporates that have that sort of set up today. And I really thought that would be something that would kind of win out so long as they, you know, whatever objections the FCC had, that they could solve those problems. But I thought that that would ultimately win out. And I ended up just being wrong. It, it just, it, it, that was the thing that is it in the public interest? That's the test, right? Ultimately, is it in the public test? Once you've satisfied the ownership, and I think they did satisfy the ownership, is it in the, is it in the public interest? And I really thought that part would win out. But Tom, to get to your point, yeah, there was clearly something more political here, which I just, I guess I didn't dig into whether it's one of those buyers ties into one of the sides. I, I mean, <laughs> that, I guess that was probably something that I just missed. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't understand that part so much going into that this is a far right leaning new buy. Like, I, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't see it. I didn't think of it that way. And even after being sent to the ALJ, we saw parties on both sides come to defend Standard General. Uh, we saw the senator from New Jersey. We saw, obviously, Ted Cruz and Kathy Rogers come out in support and really just looking more into how the FCC handled this. But you saw it from both sides. So I didn't see that going into it. But but I think you're, you're absolutely right, whether it was something political or something hedge funds, private equity. I, I don't know. It was, it was a little bit surprising, but I, it, it's certainly one of those two. It's, it appears. Do, you look, do you look at this and think, well, okay, so now decisions are likely, does this mean decisions are likely to be more capricious and arbitrary going forward or that this is a one-off? 
It's funny you say that because conveniently enough, the day after the the cover bid, Byron Allen, or, or one of the interested parties, was doing an interview with Bloomberg. It might have just been coincident timing, but he said, hey, I'm still interested. And I think I know how to structure this, that it could, and again, I'm just paraphrasing, to structure this, that it would approve. And I think I would say the same thing where I think ultimately, whether it's political or you know the, the structure, it's something a lot, or hedge funds PE structure. If you clean that part up, I do think he would have a better chance of, and I could go into detail on, on how that would work, but I don't think anything would change bringing, you know, corporate A and corporate B together. I don't think that's happening, right? Because they're all, like I said, they're basically five that are larger ones that are left and they're all too big. They can't come together without the UHF discount. That's not happening. And then there's just, there's not that many other parties that are looking to get into TV today. So it's a long way of saying, I think it can get done, but, and maybe this was a little bit of a one-off. I do kind of feel that just because there is a better alternative structure, I think, having learned from this, that probably could get done. So I just uh, just because I was a little, I wasn't exactly clear on what you were saying about the Byron Allen thing. Do you think that's possible he will come back after the, he will, now that, that the, the other deal is dead, the standard general deal is dead? Are they one of the parties that could make the deal work? And the fact that, <laughs> I mean, if you look at the political connections, the fact that the House is now okay is now in Republican hands rather than Democratic hands, what impact would that have? Yeah. So like I said, I think there are, there are just a limited number of potential buyers overall for the space. We just we haven't really seen private equity here in, in, in a long time. Obviously, Apollo, large investment fund taking a stake in Cox. We just haven't really seen too much PE. But with that being said, I, I do think Byron Allen, the, the biggest issue, and, and I'm sure you guys read about it along the way, I imagine Standard General probably would have stuck around to fight this longer if they had more time. The issue was they had affordable financing that was from February 2022 that was expiring in May 2023. And I say that because those rates today, and again, I'll make up numbers, it might have cost them 7 or 8% at that point in time in February 2022 that would probably cost upwards of double digits. And when you're borrowing on a on a eight billion dollar transaction, and you're going to borrow a huge, you know, seventy five percent of it, maybe more, it's still you know, that you know six billion dollars times the difference of five percent. It's it's substantial, and it kind of changes the whole free cash. So I say all of that because if you're Byron Allen today, and he's potentially pursuing, I think he I think he would. I think he still wants the assets. He sees value and. He wants to be larger in TV. These are his words, not my words. And, and he's been consistent with that theme for a long time. The, the simple structure is you call over to Cox and Apollo and say, all right, guys, which stations do you really want? It's $8.5 billion. We know $24, $25, somewhere around there is plus or minus the right price. Titan already said, okay, but which stations? And let's help kind of reduce that price a little bit and, and make it a little bit more palatable for a buyer. I really think it's, it's some, some way that simple. And then, you know, just being able to address some of those, whether they were really the issues or they're kind of covered for the issues. Again, the retransmission step-ups, this is standard. This is a contract. This is a contract between a TV station and a $100 billion cable company. And, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, wait, you're raising. This is where I just, and I'm saying it in this way because I've never seen that before. This is, I mean, it, it, they don't, 
the SEC has never really gone into contractual matters. They really want the parties just to resolve them. And, and again, they're, they're a contract. If you don't like it, you shouldn't sign the contract. And I know I'm being overly simplistic when I say something like that, but that, that's, that is what it is. And it's, it's common when these companies come together that you kind of reset your rates at whoever has the best, the better rate. If one's at $3 per month, one's at $4, you're going to jump to $4 per month. It's been common for a decade. And does that ultimately affect the consumer? I mean, yes and no. But again, it's a contractual matter. It's not an FCC matter. And I say that because the other issue was the, was the like you said, the potential cuts at the station side of things that really spooked the, the, the unions, the news guild. And to be fair, they are a relatively small percentage of the total employee base. I think it's like something 10% or less. But certainly that appeared, those two issues appeared to be the two that uh, those that didn't want this transaction to go through really leaned hard on as opposed to what might have been, like you said, Tom, maybe it was political, maybe it was private equity hedge fund uh, as really kind of the dominating issues. I mean, the job loss thing, anybody who opposes a merger will bring that up because it's a political winner for them, I guess. Even though, of course, if you're talking about efficiency, job losses, you know, improve it. And just to, just to be clear for people who, you know, this, this was not something that was of interest particularly to the antitrust agencies, right? They were not really. Great point. Yeah, that's a great point, Tom. So like I said, you needed to get the DOJ and you needed to get uh, the FCC approval in, in order for this deal to clear and to, to, uh, to conclude. The Standard General owns, I think, four, five, six stations, something like that, small market stations. And their rule is it's, it's more of a market share rule. So if you own two stations in a market and all of a sudden you own 50% of the ad revenue in that market, they're not going to allow that. that. That's too much market share, for example. So it was never really a DOJ issue, even though that was kind of reported a couple different times throughout this. And that's what threw a little bit of a curveball into uh, you know, us here as investors and, and me communicating with investors, where the DOJ period expired, which means they, 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 the deal was essentially cleared from that perspective. Standard General started to run a bond tender because they're getting closer. They're just waiting on the FCC. But the stock jumped from like $20 to $21.50 on a $24 deal, something along. Like Maybe it was even a little bit better than that, up to $22 because of the anticipation, okay, they got DOJ. And if it was going to get sued, it was probably going to get sued because that's what we've been seeing, a tougher regulatory overall from the FCC, DOJ. That came and went. They didn't, I don't think there was any case there. I don't know what the case would be again on market share. But then you got to, I think that that warmed people up. It, it provided the FCC with cover. Look, they approved. Now we'll approve. I think there was some built up potential excitement or, hey, we're heading closer to a potential approval with the, uh, the drop dead date happening in May. And then we got thrown the curveball Friday at 4.05. You know, we see the media bureau send it to the ALJ. Sure, sure. That, that all happened within a, within a week or so. How do you all view broadcasting as a business in general? I mean, I still, my brain updates so slowly. I still think of it just as you know, they hold spectrum and <laughs> that's, that's what their value is. But clearly it's a lot more than that, right? I mean, there's still, there's some inherent underlying big market for broadcasts. How do you, you know, how do you all look at that? Like, what's the time horizon for, for broadcasters? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great point. And I, I remember first investing in the space and I want to say it was what, 2010, 2011. And 
thinking, gosh, what does this business look like in 2013? And then in 2013, gosh, what does this look like in 2015? And here we are, we're talking about broadcast in 2023 and Standard General, Cox, Apollo, smart organizations that were willing to pay $8.6 billion for this asset. So certainly some see a lot of value in uh, the ownership, whether it's, you know, you own stations, plus you own Spectrum. Spectrum was definitely a key catalyst several years ago. A lot of them were able to monetize that and bring in some, some attractive dollars. Um, but, but the way to think about broadcast is that it's heavily local. And when you think about where newspapers are today, when you think about Yellow Pages, where it is, it's kind of a, one of the last standing ways to, to touch your local community in mass quantities. And the business models are very straightforward, even though it's a complex industry, it's very straightforward. Half the business is advertising. The other half is just collecting fees from your cable or satellite or what we call virtual MVPDs like the YouTube TV. So it's half and half. And I say that because the, uh, the, the half on advertising, it's very heavily local. So your local auto dealership, your local services company, your local appliance store, that's who's advertising because they're trying to hit those in the low community. So uh, you know, it's actually fared a lot better. And and I think what's really jumped out on that part of it is that just the amount of political dollars that continue to come to broadcasting and, and in record levels. So you could have easily seen it go in the other direction, which might have been a little bit of a signal that, oh, okay, things are certainly slowing. We know on the other side of the business, cord cutting has been happening and, and out there for years and years and years. That's certainly still there. As uh, that's that's turning over about five, six, seven percent year over year. I, I know, I like I told you guys at the onset, I, I do a lot in the technology space. If I were to reach out to ten different investors, you know, I could probably get a lot of people's in, in intention on software company that has a great future, growing at 10, 15, 25 percent. Broadcast, you know, it's a little bit different. It's it's old, it's old media. It's uh, you know, I think uh, those that do invest in the space believe and the hyper-local nature of that business and, and that it's here for many years to come. So that means it's also, it's benefited from the decline of local newspapers? I think so. I think uh -huh. that, yeah, some of the other forms of distribution have changed. Radio, obviously radio is still, still okay, but you know, it seems like TV. And then you, know, you have uh, all, all the major sports get all the big, biggest numbers when they're on broadcast TV, which is really helped out. And those deals are locked in for 10 years, for example, with the NFL. So that certainly helps. So yeah, it's a combination of, 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 of those factors. So we don't have a lot of time left, but you, I know you, you follow lots of mergers. You know, what's, what's one that you think is particularly interesting that's going to require, either require affirmative government approval or the government to not, <laughs> to not block it? Yeah, I was thinking about this. Which one do I mention? Because there are, you know, high profile, big pharma deals or a couple big tech deals out there. But maybe the easiest one to think about, and again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a, a Needham name that we've been around for a long time, is iRobot that's getting purchased by Amazon. And I, I'm only using that because whoever's listening to this, everyone probably has a better idea what iRobot is. And the, the Roombas, we happen to have two in our house, for example, that, that clean the floors for us. But this was a deal that was announced in August, so let's call it 10 months ago. It's one that's going to require FTC approval. It's going to require some European approvals as well, including the UK. But the buyer is Amazon. And there are two issues there. One is 
just the, the collection of data. So they know in my home, again, I think, I think this is what the problem is. So they, they know the square footage of my home. I suppose they're in my home. They know multiple floors, something along those lines on the data side of things. Of course, that's public knowledge anyway, right? That's a, if it's all real estate records. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I, you think about they have uh, security systems. We have an Alexa in our home. I, I don't know. I think it's along those lines, right? Of just mm-hmm. something tied into all those on the on the data side of things. And then the other side is on the competitive side. If Amazon is is iRobot's largest uh, customer, they sell a lot of products on Amazon. Would they disproportionately favor iRobot products relative to other, you know, robotic vacuums or any vacuums, right? Again, I'm saying all this because iRobot's a really small company, relatively small company. Granted, they do a billion dollars of revenue, but the total transaction is a billion seven. And again, in my world, I'll just give you guys some some rough numbers. If this deal, the stock trades at $40, if the deal gets done, you're going to get 61. So there's a 20, there's a, what is that? A 50% spread. If that deal gets done, as I told you before, it really, if investors feel very highly confident, it'll trade at one or 2%. If investors aren't confident and concerned about, again, this is purely regulatory, as well as balancing out what that company's worth without Amazon's bid, it's the two problem. But here's an example, same kind of thing. The UK has just opened up the phase one that they'll look into this, this transaction. And again, it, you know, it's one of those that I kind of scratch my head as far as However, you want to define that space. I don't think it's just robotic vacuums. And uh, forgive me for continuing to use examples at my house, but you know we have a shop back, we have a couple melees, we have a we have a couple Dysons. <laughs> you know, you just go on and on, and we happen to have a couple Roombas. So, um, <laughs> so you're a vacuum cleaner aficionado. <laughs> so, so we like to keep the house clean. Not the but, house must be very clean. <laughs> it's, it's those situations where you, you're almost you're just surprised that. There's just that much risk. It's been 10 months already. What is the FTC really looking into, concerned about, for example? But that's one to monitor. Again, it's not just the FTC. It's the UK as well that they just opened up their phase one. There's a lot of time left. And and unlike Standard General that was running out of financing timing, there's no issue with Amazon, for example. So that's, well, so that's, you know you're being you're being very charitable and and you know thinking of possible competitive issues and so on. But you know we all know that you know Chairwoman Khan built her career on an anti Amazon platform. I mean that was her famous Yale Law Review article. Do investors worry about that? That that's something she's going to pay particular attention to just because it's Amazon. One hundred percent. That's the dominating factor. The one issue here in the U.S. is is that it all comes down to the FTC regulatory, whether or not they will uh, allow this transaction to go through. Or like I said, uh, if you drill down a little bit deeper, it's the data side of things, uh, as well as the competition side of things. Those would be one one of those two issues is where I think they would sue on. But yeah, it certainly comes back to Amazon overall. And and probably the view, the view too big, too powerful, et cetera, et cetera. And, and look, I use this example sometimes. And by the way, I don't have any skin in the game whatsoever. But when Amazon went out and bought Whole Foods, you know, I lived in New York City for 15 years. You know, Whole Foods was really expensive. You know, and it was the best. It was one of the best down at down in Union Square, and it's really, really expensive. But now, like since it's been under Amazon's umbrella, and again, I'm not hyping Amazon as much as it's actually benefited consumers in, in a great way and when you think about the iRobot the Roomba for example uh, they're high price points 
I, I'm pretty sure that Amazon will probably find ways to cut that eight or eight hundred or a thousand dollars down to five hundred or six hundred or two hundred or three hundred. If you really want to peel peel back the onion, I honestly think it's a it's a beneficial transaction for for consumers for for that reason. So what I I, I haven't been following. What, what stage is this at? Has it, has Amazon made an offer? Has there been a second request for data? Is there? I mean, what stage is it at? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. Tom, to answer your question explicitly, there was a second request. That time has now lapsed. And I believe it was last week, I don't remember exactly what the date was, that Amazon confirmed that they put forward all the necessary documents. I forget exactly which day it was. But now I believe there's a unofficially like a 30-day period where the FTC can come back and, and make some decision. That, that's where we stand here in the U.S. Okay. So we'll know soon whether they're going to try to challenge it. Right. So find out in, in, over the next few weeks whether or not they'd like to challenge it. And then separately in the UK, they, I want to say about a month ago, a month and a half ago, maybe they opened phase one of their review, which is more than likely to go to phase two. Phase one, it's probably not too dissimilar. It's shorter period. And then phase two can take anywhere from what, four to six months, something along those lines. So net net, we could be toward the end of the year before we get uh, official approval. But to, your, to answer your question, Tom, it, where we're at in the US, I believe it was just last week that we got news that Amazon has submitted all of the necessary information. FTC has that today. So, I mean, the FTC right now has three Democrats and no Republicans. Do investors worry about that sort of thing? Or, or do they figure, you know, if you've got three votes, you got your three votes and the dissents don't really matter anyway? Yeah, so it, it's interesting because I would say mindset has shifted so much in M&A around regulatory that it's the question is not even at this point, are you going to get a second request? It's almost like a given you're going to get a second. Like if you don't get a, if you don't get a second request, you're almost like, you know, in, in surprise. And, but, but I say all of that because it just comes down to how strong is their case, right? And, and are the buyers willing to argue in court for the merits of their transaction. So that's in many ways, especially these big pharma deals, for example, we just saw that uh, with Horizon and Amgen, for example, that the uh, FTC, I want to say, what was that, a couple of weeks ago, that they are suing to block and the stock went, you know, went down 15% that day, definitely caught people off guard anytime you see a move like that. But you also sit there and you wait, you, you say, wait a sec, is Amgen going to fight this or not? The buyer, and sure enough, they they said they would. And then, you know, what's important is who's going to be the judge. And you start thinking about some of these things. And that one started to recover a little bit. Still, you know, hundred dollar stock today, which means what? Which is left on this one horizon? Still seventeen percent spread today. So still quite a, quite a bit of a spread there. But yeah, now that's going to go to the judge, and and we'll see how strong of a case. So I guess the easiest way to answer, I think second requests are almost really expected at this point. And then it really comes down to how strong of a case do the regulators have in court. So I think that's something that investors are weighing heavily much earlier than what we had ever really seen before. Is that affecting the types of mergers that are being proposed or or sought? For sure. I think, we don't know for sure, but Merck was looking to buy CGen, this was sometime last year. I think they had some conversations, whether it was bid ask or the ability to get, get regulatory clearance. They ended up walking away. Pfizer came in uh, in March 
and ended up announcing a transaction. Same kind of thing. It bit, you know, forty billion dollars. It's 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 a huge number. It's big pharma. But as far as overlap, I think the investment community feels pretty good about where they're at as far as what could they could potentially point to, what kind of novel theories and what, what, what are some other things that they, and will they hold up in court? So there are a ton of them. I'm not as close to like the Black Knight in Intercontinental Exchange. That's another name, similar type of situation that we're waiting to see, you know, what happens in court. So there are a lot of these. This is definitely totally different than what we've seen before. And Obviously, our focus here is in the U.S., but even in the U.K. right now with this Microsoft Activision, the U.K., I won't go into too much detail, but they, they, they found the reason to block on cloud where uh, the, the gaming industry is going potentially in five to 10 years. But Microsoft's not stopping. I mean, they are taking out every top law firms, the, the top senior executives are flying over to the U.K. to meet with anyone and everyone. So we'll see what happens there. I say that because we all know Microsoft, one of the most, the biggest and most valuable and, and most powerful companies in the world. And we'll see if they're able to find a way to get that done. But that's, that's another situation. You know, 19% spread expires you know, sometime over the next couple of months. So you know, a lot of these names, big spreads, big regulatory risk. It's really just the common theme where we are today. And probably why, you know, I would say it's two issues overall, why more M&A is not happening. One is access to financing. As, as I'm sure you guys have seen what's happened with, with interest rates are just a lot more expensive. It's, you know, high yield rates are, you know, eight and a half percent, which means you're probably borrowing at, you know, 10, 12 percent for new deals. And then the uncertain regulatory. How long is this going to take? And what's the likelihood it gets challenged? And do we really want to take that on right now? I think that's why you're, you're not seeing as much. I imagine if you're Lena Khan, you look at that and say, that's great. That's For what sure. I wanted. <laughs> yep. Yep. You know, that was the thought even with CGen, would Pfizer move forward with something like that? And they said, hey, we're willing to take that risk. And again, I, we talked at the onset about the, the airlines, for example. We know JetBlue and, and, and Spirit's out there. So yeah, it's it's a, it's an unusual environment. Maybe some feel more confident than others. But I think anybody that's entering any definitive agreement recognizes that like expect uh, more challenges, expect more time and more scrutiny, obviously. I was just curious about whether you think, hypothetically, if a deal was blocked in the UK, but not elsewhere, well, in particular, not in the US, would the transaction still be likely to go through or would it be effectively blocked? And I guess it, it would probably industry specific, but. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a good question. Let me let me answer it this way. Technically, you need to get every regulatory body to approve. Sometimes you don't get a decision and the parties just close. We've seen that before. In this case with, with Microsoft and Activision, we're seeing the lengths that they're willing to go to. And by the way, they don't have US approval and US approval is going to get be challenging as well. I think everyone's watching to see EU said okay, uh, the European Commission said okay. We're waiting on the UK and, and the US is probably going to just see what happens there first. But the fact that Microsoft's spending so much time there, I mean, do they see doing business and, and some of that? I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if that's, that's possible. I don't, I don't, I, obviously, it, it becomes a lawsuit and that, that's what happens here in the US, certainly. And I imagine it's, it's similar. I mean, one could visualize with us with maybe a simpler product like vacuum cleaners or robotic vacuum cleaners. You could say, well, we're just, we're just not going to. I mean, this is just hypothetical. We're just not going to sell vacuum cleaners in the in the UK. 
Right. I guess. I don't I mean. Yeah. No, I think that I think that's possible. Then it would come down to the buyer, right? Thinking, assuming that's okay, comes down to the buyer. Are they saying, are they willing and okay to say, hey, you know, we agreed to pay this price. However, we just lost 10% of our business. Like, uh, I, I don't see it very often. I remember with Google and Fitbit, they just never got anything back. They never got a decision. They just closed it. <laughs> you know, it was one of those uh, those situations. That was here in the U.S. Something I was thinking about, but yeah, I think that's why there are these processes. There, there are the the legal system for potential buyers. I mean, the U.K. does specialize in shooting itself in the foot these days, so you, know, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> So we should we should definitely leave it there. Ryan, thank you so much. This is this was really interesting to hearing about the interactions between Wall Street and DC and the effects of regulations. Really appreciate your your time. Great. Thank Thanks you. Thanks a lot. Thank you.